This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with artist and filmmaker Mike Mills about his career and about his formative influences. The biggest work influence on my life are my parents' dinner parties. Here's Debbie Millman. Mike Mills has done so many different types of work, it's hard to imagine how it all comes out of the same person. As a graphic artist, he's designed album covers for Sonic Youth and the Beastie Boys. He's also designed scarves and skateboards. He's created music videos for Yoko Ono, Moby, and Pulp, and commercials for Nike and, yes, Old Spice. His artwork has appeared in museums in the U.S. and Europe. His feature movies include Thumbsucker, Beginners, and his Oscar-nominated film, 20th Century Women. I'm here today in Los Angeles to talk to Mike about his extraordinary career and what it is that all his various creative endeavors might have in common. Mike Mills, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you very much. Mike, you were born in Berkeley, California, and your father was an art historian and museum director, and your mom was a draftsperson who looked like Amelia Earhart and wanted to be a pilot in World War II. Would you say it was a very creative environment? Uh, creative and uh, highly entrepreneurial. There's, more than anything, these are Depression-era kids. Mm. They're born in the 20s. They, when they turn 18, the draft of World War II started. And my mom, she didn't fit into any sort of typical female dreams or hopes, or, especially when it comes to work. And she wanted to be an architect. She wanted to be a pilot, actually, World War II. And back then, that was really not allowed. You couldn't even go to architecture school as a woman. So the war, kind of like a Rosie the Riveter story, but not working in factories. But she worked uh, as a draftsperson at the Container Corporation of America. Wow, pretty swabby. Uh, And the only woman in the drafting room, you know, in the early 40s, and then moved down to Long Beach and worked on the docks there in drafting field and got to have a lot of opportunities I don't think she maybe would have had if the war hadn't happened. And my dad was shipped off to the Lucian Islands where he was a gay man doing Morse code in the Lucian Islands for four years in a Quonset hut with a bunch of men, you know. That's sort of like a just crazy nightmare, it sounds like. Sounds a little Alan Turing-esque. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they would always, if they were here, they would say that America was different than America was more bohemian, America was more socialist, America was more diverse. And my mother's always sort of saying, all the characters are dying, go talk to Mary Steele over there at the dinner party because she's a true weirdo. So they had that to them, even though my dad wore a suit every day and my mom, you know, they're very hardworking people and not typically arty, but they were deeply bohemian, I think, from just an older, weirder America. Your parents got married in 1955. They were married for 45 years. And you've said that your mother knew your father was gay and your father knew he was gay. But growing up, did you know your father was gay? When I was 18, my oldest sister mentioned something about it, which was quite a... Anybody who has deep family secrets or open secrets, it's like you're both shocked and totally not shocked, you know? But being, whatever, not the most woke, heterosexual man myself as the 18-year-old Santa Barbara boy and whatever that was, 1983 or something, I thought, well, okay, so he was gay and he's not anymore. 
You know, it's a convenient <laughs> story. Or when oh. he was a kid, he was gay or something like that. Or oh. I didn't really know much. And he didn't seem gay at all. He voted for Reagan. He, like I said, he wore a suit and tie every day. He Sex just seemed completely devoid from this person, you know. But your parents conceived you when they were 40, 10 and 7 years after your sisters were born. And you stated that you were the product of their recreational sex. So, yeah. so they must have loved each other. They were complicated. They definitely loved each other. They knew each other since junior high. I'm not sure how much joy permeated their relationship that I saw, you know, but they were like architecture partners. I always describe them. They love building things and they had a lot of respect for each other. And it wasn't like a, a, there was no heat in the house, but there was definitely darkness and unresolved things. And it's, again, it's really so, you had to contextualize it in their time. No one did what they wanted to do <laughs> from their generation, or very few people did, right? Yeah, so being happy in a job wasn't something you really considered a or lot. Or love. Yeah. You know, like self-sacrifice is sort of interwoven with everything. And also, like, it's complicated being a human being and sexuality. And my mom is equally complicated to my dad in different ways that are actually more mysterious. Like, who is my Amelia Earhart mom? Who's Amelia Earhart? And her sexuality and Right. Well, you also said that she was a combination of Amelia Earhart and Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Yeah. So very butchy. Very butch and hard drinking, hard smoking, contractor person who, like, my memories of her with a sandbag over her shoulder, you know, and nailing nailing up a two-by-four. That's my mom, you know. So, yeah, it all, all the gender stuff in my family is very fluid. It doesn't fit into the normal binary situation. And... They're very interesting people. They had to overcome so much stuff, not as much as other people, but more than I ever had to. They had this incredible work ethic and had this incredible, um, I, it's kind of like the Eames to me, uh, this kind of post-war American uh, enlightened mission where you're a part of a community, you need to pitch in. You're, it's a very socialist American dream. Like you have the social responsibility to develop a community, participate in it, make things better, and the world will get better. The world so, is yeah, going to get it better. It was an optimism. Yeah, optimism. And part of my parents' hard work was these, my dad was a museum director of the Oakland Museum of Art and the Santa Barbara Museum of Art. So you have a dinner party maybe every week, and the dinner parties were like 20 to 100 people. And so the house was like this constant community center or Salon, party center. Right? Salons makes it sound a little more romantic. Oh, okay. uh, Santa Barbara in the 70s, sort of a drunken, weird intersection of a whole bunch of different kinds of people. And the art world back then was more heterogeneous than I feel like it is now. So, yeah, it was exposed to a whole lot of people. And that sense that um, this engagement, this kind of social engagement, and like they were sort of hosts to parties both in their house and metaphorically just in life. As a director, that's sort of how I treat directing. I've invited you all to this get-together. I am the host that all sort of revolves around me in a way, or your good time, or your performance, or your job. And I take a lot of cues from their generousness that I saw, and how contagious that is. And so it's, I don't know, that's been, in a weird way, the biggest work influence on my life are my parents' dinner parties. I don't know if that's really true, but it feels like it is. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know your first job was at McDonald's, Mm. and that's where you learned that the customer's always right. Customer's always right. Has that influenced your directing as well? 
Yeah, I always say that. I joke about that. You know, you have when you do a movie, you have lots of screenings, and you show your movie to all sorts of people. And and during the edit process, you have like a screening every week just to figure out your movie. And often, you, know, you get all this feedback. And if you really invite negative feedback as a director, you always feel overwhelmed. They always want to argue with the person. Well, no, no, that's not what it means. But I never do that because McDonald's taught me that the customer is always right. There's no use <laughs> arguing with. If that's their interpretation of your movie, they are right. You're not right. As the author of this text, you don't have control over it, and you're so somewhere that's like Roland Barthes meets McDonald's is kind of part of my interpretation of notes uh, paradigm. Yeah, I find it's really hard to convince somebody that they're wrong when they really, really think they're right. Yeah, but in filmmaking and in film, the film experience, the film exchange, they are right. The audience is always right. It doesn't matter what you intended. If they interpret something else, that's what happened. It's like arguing with facts. Right. Yeah. You were in punk bands all through high school. Were you first intending to be a musician? Well, I was first intending to be a professional skateboarder, and skating got me into all this stuff. Skating is how I started doing graphics, really. I started doing, just like imitating all the logos of all the companies and then doing logos on boards, and weirdly, it was part of the skating aesthetic experience, and skateboarding was like an aesthetic experience. You're exposed to like kids' style and mm, just all the art that surrounded that, that world, and punk music. So skating slides into punk. Yes, didn't work out being a professional skateboarder or like having a company or any of that stuff. How come? How come? It just wasn't that good. I was like a sponsored amateur skater. I was sort of like a proletariat, you know, like B-level Southern California competitive skateboarder. But I loved it and taught me so much about freedom and trying to figure yourself out and the actual experience of skateboarding can be quite euphoric, you know, like you're in vertical pools. It's very engrossing and all that. And, you know, music actually changes your bloodstream, like changes, oh, I think your, it changes your, your DNA. Chemistry, Absolutely. Right? And I think I was always searching for that in these other mediums, and film can kind of do that a bit. I read that when you first heard punk music, you stated, what is this noise? What is this destructive noise? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when was that? I don't remember the exact year. I mean, it must have been around 79, 80. And I was at the Del Mar Skate Ranch, I can tell you that. And there was a contest, and they played music really loud at all the contests. And it went from being like, I don't know, something probably like some rock music to like, it was either the Buzzcocks or... Well, I know that you were listening at that point to Circle Jerks, Black Flag, Gang of Four, Buzzcocks. The very first thing, it was a British band. I remember that part. I don't remember who exactly it was, but I remember it just sounding completely atonal and not like music. And like, why would anybody purposely make this? Why would anybody purposely listen to this? But literally, the next morning I was hooked. You know, it's one of those things that happens to you. And then, yeah, so the scene that was around that L.A., Skating scene was the L.A. hardcore scene, so like Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Adolescence, TSOL, those are all the bands that everyone listened to, and they frequented the skate parks and vice versa. You were in a band while you were in high school called R.I.P., which I read that someone funnier than you yep. renamed the band Rock Stars in Puberty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were all too sincere But I, but I, ambitions. I, you, re- you appeared on local radio stations. You played a fair amount of shows. I mean, you must have been pretty good. No? As the band? Yeah. Oh, we were... Um, the band after that, the incarnation after that, was pretty decent. And that, we were on the local radio station a couple times, and... 
And there was an older members of that band who were quite good and like interesting and taught me a lot about music and turned me on to like Joy Division and Bauhaus and kind of more sophisticated arty things and just like LA hardcore stuff. Once you got into Joy Division, you then also were interested in the Talking Heads. And I read that at a punk house in Santa Barbara, somebody spray painted Mike Mills is an art fag mm-hmm. um, on on a house, which is a scene that later appeared um, in in slightly different configuration mm-hmm. in 20th century women. Mm-hmm. Were you really an art fag? Yeah, I mean, all that happened. My sister, so this gets involved in the movie a bit. So I have these sisters who are 10 and 7 years older and Meg's in... New York City going to Parsons and really in it, like going to CB's, going to Studio 54, knowing that scene. And my other sister, Katie's at Berkeley, and had just seen the Talking Heads play those shows at um, the Plaza there. And those are kind of famous shows now. And they both simultaneously, I can't remember who told me first, like, you should listen to Talking Heads. And then Meg somehow got me that orange shirt um, from New York, and I very proudly wore it. And I was in junior high, I remember, and the coolest, most sophisticated girl in school came up to me and said I love your shirt and I remember just thinking like this is power like this is (laughs) this is big and uh but yeah so so I mean anybody who was involved in that music scene will know what I'm about to talk about which is there was all these rules and there's all these divisions and if you listen to the Talking Heads or the B-52s or Bauhaus or Joy Division you're kind of it was slightly illegal and you were you could be called an art fag and that was something that was bandied about and it's part of like this larger Oh, heteronormative, kind of macho, misogynist part of that hardcore scene, which was anything to call another guy a fag or to accuse him of being that is like the it's the words you hear right before the fight. You right. Know, it's the it's the big accusation. Yep. It's the it's sissy. It, yeah, sorry. It's a derivation of sissy. So, um and there was this punk house right by the school where all these kids called the Cedar Rats hung out and stuff like that. And they were they were interesting and I was totally pretentious. So there's a there's a side to their dislike of me, which I am sympathetic about. <laughs> why were you Why were you pretentious? I still am. I dislike the most pretentious art. I'm sorry, but it's true. What do you consider to be pretentious art? Well, like as a filmmaker, I like I love Alain Rosnais, right? And I love Fellini, and I love, oh, you know, just stuff like that. And my, you know, my, I just think that's good art. <laughs> yeah, me too. But you now I went to Cooper, right? The Friday night film class film first film I saw when I was 18 years old was eight and a half right so I've been exposed to all that my you know I grew up in an art house but I am sort of attracted to things that have a slight sort of fainting couch quality to them right a slight like oh me and my malaise quality to them and that does get a little pretentious you followed your sister, Megan, to New York City in 1984 to go to college, and you got into both Cooper Union and the Rhode Island School of Design, and I read that Herbert Bayer told you to go to Cooper Union. Mm. How did you know Herbert Bayer at that time? Uh, so, okay, so weirdly, so my dad's the director of the Santa Barbara Art Museum. Guess who lives in Santa Barbara? Herbert Bayer. And my dad was doing some things with him to get a chromatic gate, large public art sculpture made. So... I went to his studio a few times, and this is later in life for Rebire. And he came to my house numerous times for cocktail Dinner parties, parties. As did lots of people, like Ed Ruscha or Diebenkorn or blah, blah, blah. Like a bunch of different people did. Um, mm, dreamy. I, I hated it. Why? Because <laughs> it's your parents' world. And they but were, you must have been influenced by these conceptual artists. Retrospectively, yes. But as a teenager, those are my parents' stodgy parties, and I wanted to go be my 
punk band, oh, and they were enough. like the man. Yep, yep, they were yep. okay. the establishment. And Herbert Beyer, he worked in such a key pivotal moment. He did such key pivotal work. And if you meet him in person when he's like 80, he's just a grumpy old man that told you to go to Cooper Union. There wasn't much substance behind the experience or the exchange. And was that the That was literally all he said. Really? I came up, and I probably said like four sentences to him, right? I, oh, Mr. Pryor, I'm so respectful, blah, blah, blah. You know, I said all this stuff, and he just said, go to Cooper Union. And that was it. (laughs) Done. And And was that the decision making factor? And we were talking about it much more. Uh, No, 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 no. New York City seemed more interesting. People, Cooper's harder to get into, so everyone's like, ooh, go to Cooper. It was free at the time, too, right? It was free. It wasn't so much the freeness, it was the prestige of getting in definitely had a buzz. And since Meg went to New York and just, you know, the the prestige of New York, and I'm a punk rock kid, so the punk live experience when you're a kid in this immersive thing that I was talking about, and if you grew up in a house where you feel like you can have your feelings and you didn't know what your feelings were, if you grew up a culture which basically supports that, you know what I mean, that don't be who you are, right, which to a white heterosexual man is sounds like whining about my privilege, but it's a very real feeling. Like, it's a very, uh, something I live with to this day. Like, like, what am I actually really feeling? And can I even articulate it when I've been trained for so long not to, not to do that, right? And punk is a disruption to that. And the noise and the liberation within the sort of capsule of noise that you can enter right? I found like deeply healing and important. And being 10 feet in front of like those, like those shows, whichever band it was, was huge for me. Yeah. Hard to, hard to like, I've, I've done so much talking about this since the last movie, about the influence of punk on me and the kind of the emotional importance and sort of like, however you would phrase that, the historical, social, emotional possibilities that mm-hmm. are open to a person. My parents have their own version of it, which is really interesting and deep and limited. <laughs> Being my dad knew he was gay in the thirties. Imagine that. You know, and his father was in the cavalry in World War One. So imagine that being that guy. So my, my problems are less than that, but the alternative emotional options that Punk offered was really, really important and profound. When you went to Cooper Union, I understand you started to think that the art world actually wasn't enough. It was too rarefied and too moneyed, and though you wanted to be an artist, you questioned whether the art world was too much of a closeted, closed circuit, Mm -hmm. and you wanted to be in the public sphere. Was that why, at the time, you chose design? Yeah, totally. Um, Whatever my talents are, whatever, whatever my interests are, I got it. Like, I gravitated towards... I don't know, to graphics. (laughs) Never have said that before. But yet, so, you know, this is the 80s. I started Cooper in 1984. So the whole Soho, Mary Boone world is what's going on. Yeah. And, like, I'm working for, like, I'm doing Sean Scully wood prints and noticing that I'm actually doing all the work. And then some curator from the Brooklyn Art Museum is talking about the beauty of his lines and stuff like that. And my friends are breaking Julian Schnabel plates and doing that kind of stuff. And... So we all kind of have first seat exposure to the art world, but we're all like punky, entitled 20-year-olds, 19-year-olds, and very critical of it all and and highly ethical <laughs> and not knowing really anything about the world. But it, what, that was a, that's a fucked up version of art. I'm sorry, the, that gallery world. And yes, I'm sure 
I'm sure there's lots of liberation to be had therein. But looking at it from where we were looking at it, it really seemed quite moneyed, incredibly subjective, incredibly making toys for wealthy people seemed like what it was. And then I was highly influenced by Hans Hacke and like Ellen Lepton and people who are involved in a more socially engaged, socially conscious understanding of what your practice was and how it was interacting with the world. This is also um, when AIDS was ravaging New York City and ACT UP was highly active and Grand Fury and I knew people in Grand Fury and that all seemed just like much more alive and I guess related to my things that turned me on in the past, the punk scene, parts of the skateboarding scene. So I had some friends who were smarter than me, more interesting than me, who started getting into design before I did and were like, what are you doing? You know? And even Hans Hacke's work involves a lot of design. So when I started to do conceptual art sculptures, I started to migrate to the design floor because I needed to set some type. I needed to do some stuff like that. And I was like, huh, these people, they wear nice clothes. Like, <laughs> they're not dressed like uh, all of us on the, on the fourth floor, which was the sculpture floor. We were just dirty, sawdust-ridden monsters. You know what I mean? I was like, who are these people that seem very intelligent? And, you know, just, yeah, Karen just... Goldberg once said she became a designer because she wanted nicer sheets. <laughs> <laughs> so I was attracted to all that. And then just starting to play with type and starting to play with that, I... I liked it. Like, there's something I, I try. I don't know if I've ever really talked about that much, but I liked Helvetica. You know what I mean? Like, I just liked the cleanness, the graphic quality of graphics. Sounds so stupid. But I really, um, something about it was very accessible to me, and I, I had a feeling for what to do. And I remember... Um, What's his name? George Sadik. Do you remember? Do you know who yeah. he is? So I went up to him at Cooper Union. He didn't major. You just had to like beg and steal your way into any class you wanted to take. So I went up to him as a junior and I said, Oh, can I take intro to type? And he said, You haven't taken typography. How old are you? So I said, I don't know. I'm 21. He's like, You are uncivilized. He said something like that. You, you don't know anything about culture. Oh, my goodness. And he, that's how he was treating design, which I kind of <laughs> I was like, Right on. You're just so, <laughs> you are. Wow, I never heard of someone talk about design like that, you know. And it sounds he, a little like Massimo Vignelli. Yeah, he's a little Vignelli-ish. Yeah. He was a little Vignelli-ish. And he was a, definitely a Vignelli-ite in that. If, why would you ever have two fonts in one piece of paper? You know, like that is Philistine. And he would talk about <laughs> things like that. So that's kind of attractive to have such rigor and intensity. And, and, and he let me take the class after scolding me. He did let me take it. How did you start working for the Beastie Boys and for Sonic Youth? You started working, you were designing T-shirts and album covers. How did you first start getting work from them? That's a long, weird story. Um, the short version is, so I lived in Lower East Side. I lived around the street from this place called the Ledge Gallery on Ludlow Street. And I was an old skater. Ludlow Gallery started having, and I was freelance and not making a living, like really struggling, you know, getting changed to get bagels in the morning kind yeah. of times. And this guy named Aaron Rose had this show about skateboarding art, and I was doing a catalog for an Ellen Lepton show about popular culture and a high-low show, a vernacular show. Yeah. And I did a piece about skateboarding graphics and the history of skateboarding graphics. And so, weirdly, Aaron had a show right at the same time, sort of a one of the first shows like that, too, to treat skateboarding aesthetic culture as a thing with a history. And... 
I started hanging out there all the time, and I started kind of getting back into that world. I had sort of lost touch with that world. And all those bands frequented that gallery. And I had a show there, and I sort of, Money Mark came and bought one of my posters, so they brought the Beastie Boys back, so they saw that work. So it was kind of on their register. And then what really happened was uh, Christine Martinez, you know who she is? No. She, she was um, in Boss Hog. And she's an amazing performer, and she's um, she was the head of production at many different Condé Nast magazines. She liked my stuff. She's married to John Spencer, John Spencer of the Blues Explosion. John likes my stuff through Christina. I start working for him. One summer, all these bands are touring together, the Blues Explosion, Sonic Youth, and the BC Boys. And just randomly, they all come into the gallery. They all like the show. And then in that scene, I'm one of the few people that will be at Max Fish till 2 in the morning, but I'll go to work at nine. So I'm kind of like the person you can meet at the bar, but also does the job and I knows know. how to do stuff on a deadline and all that. So that worked out. How did you first start to work with Keyboard Kelman? How did you get that job? So that was, I was at Cooper, and so I got into design late. I only took like two design classes, but I met Ellen Lupton and the LaBalance Center and everything that she was doing there, and that was kind of the most exciting option to me as a senior, right? And I was a, an intern. And all of us Hans Hakka students were sort of pretentious theory heads, and we read Foucault, and we read all the sort of cultural theory stuff, and Tibor liked that, and I kind of helped him with his speeches a little bit. There was one speech I helped him with. The one that he did in Hungarian? No, no. <laughs> he had many speeches, and he was, he was quite good at that. And he had these three slide projector slideshows he was doing. So I was kind of in charge of keeping track of all the slides and making sure those things that went well. That was a well. tough job back was then. A scary job. you had to make sure live. they were all in order, and then they would fall out. It was and, live. Yeah. And he was... And you had to go with him. Must have been terrifying. It was a little scary. And then, and then he liked that I knew something about this or pretended to know something about this cultural theory stuff. And he was trying, I think he was trying to incorporate some of that in some of his talks. And I helped with that. But while I was doing that, I learned about graphic design really on the job. And Marlene McCarthy, who was a, like a Basel person, taught me about kerning and taught me about accidents and taught me about, you know, that's how I learned. Yeah. Because I only had two classes before that. Now, you said that you were nervous around Tibor, and I also read that you were nervous and self-conscious around Kim Gordon and Mike D, but mm. yet you, you did all this amazing work for them. How, how did you get over this sort of nerdy self-consciousness in, in both places? Well, the work is where you hide. You know, the work has always been the shield. I'm not self-conscious in the work. Mm. That's the thing, especially if I'm alone. <laughs> uh, that's always been the thing from childhood where I could be free and somewhat myself-ish. And live interactions are where it's still nerve-wracking. I, I can get nervous around anybody. Yeah, that's just me. <laughs> but um, the work was always a place where I could be bigger than I am or braver than I am. And and Tibor, Tibor can scare you. Tibor is, could be just a very intimidating person and, and was not an easy person to be the employee of. Like, he was real hard on all of us. And he had he, two things really learned, which were kind of amazing, but hard. He never let you draw a sketch bigger than a quarter. How come? He just wanted a ton of ideas. He didn't want you to get involved in the aesthetics of your idea very much and work it out. 
and he wasn't like an idea person. So he's like, that's a good idea or a bad idea, then go pursue it. And he wanted lots of quarter-sized things on a page, and wanted, he wanted you to present as, as many ideas as you possibly could. And the other thing he taught me, which he taught everyone to work there, which is a great lesson to all the designers out there, is um, he would say most designers think that their work is great or good or that the work will speak for itself, and they present the work as if it's going to do the work. And what they don't know is you have to sell the job before you show them anything. You have to sell them your design. And you have to subliminally give them the words that they're going to say to their friends about why they're so smart that they picked your thing. Ooh, how do you do that? He was good at that. And we would often do these long, like if you're presenting a logo, I forgot what it was, Stable Films or some other different little companies. It wouldn't be a huge job, but the logo's the fourth, the last card of the presentation, like all these 11 by 14 cards. There'd be 40 other cards where, like, you think you want this, but this is why that's dumb. <laughs> uh, and this is, I bet, what you want, but this is why that's not right. Here, Here's a joke. Here's another disarming joke. Here's a design that... I'm going to sell you on, but then tell you why, but that's really B-level. And then finally, here's the here's the thing. And they're like cornered by the time they see the final so thing. So it's not a presentation, it's a performance. It's a very good performance, yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. You also dabbled in street art uh-huh. and said that your graffiti comes from a May 68 sort of situationist vibe. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> well, that's Complicated. So this world I'm involved in, this alleged gallery world, there's people who know about that, and a lot of that is sort of street art, which I always find sort of a silly title, and a lot of that is graffiti. Um, and so there's a lot of people doing fine art that was based on graffiti, or do they, only, they still only do graffiti, and there's a whole culture of that. But I was much more interested in the way situationists would use graffiti, the way that it was used in the, in the May 68, Paris uprising, the way that Godard uses graffiti in his films. Uh, it's much more of a sort of playful, innovative, letterist, mm, uh, verbal uh, disruption, which relates a little bit more to graphic design in a way. So when I started to do that kind of stuff, it was much more Godard related to me than like Espo or Shepard Ferry or any, any of that kind of stuff. And to me, it was really still a continuation of this thing that from art school I've been doing, which is how to get out of the art world, like how to do art out of the art world and started with graphic design. And then it kind of moved to like, well, film is actually even more in the entertainment scene, doing music videos, doing ads, doing films. That's way off. You know, you're really in the public sphere even more so. Uh, And graffiti in a funny way, like doing something in front of the Grove, like I tagged the Grove here in L.A., and that was felt like that's very public, you know. So it's always been this project of how can I be surprising and disruptive in that space where you didn't see me coming. When you sprayed graffiti on the side of the Paramount lot, you wrote the words boring and surrender uh-huh. and wore a business suit. Uh-huh. Why? Uh, well, the suit, so I've, I've started to wear a suit since I was like 30. So I went from being like, you know, like a retired skateboarder look. And then like just realizing how played that was or how unsubversive that became. And so a weird way, the most subversive thing for me to do as a punk rock skateboarding person is to wear a suit, right? Were you influenced by your dad? A little bit. There's My dad wore a suit every day. Yeah. 
and also just influenced by seeing pictures of like you know I'm getting into film at this point I'm starting as a director and you know Truffaut Fellini all those guys wore suits on set and there's something so kind of beautiful about that and the graffiti thing it really helps you if you're doing graffiti daylight middle of the day and you're wearing a suit and you're a white dude everyone just thinks you should be doing that. Wow, that's really interesting. So if, if you're going to commit a crime, wow. wear a suit. <laughs> <laughs> and and then suits on the set are a slightly different thing. It's it's respect to the crew. As The sets are so hierarchical, and you're inheriting this hierarchy. So it's like the role of the president or something. It's not you, it's the role. So it's like trying to pay respect to the role. And I kind of like that heritage. And as a guy, there's very few fashion options that I feel comfortable in. Like, I wish I was queenier and flamboyant. That'd be awesome. But that's just not my taste. I'm a little bit more like Charles Eames. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I like things kind of... I'm a little Protestant. <laughs> so the suit is a nice thing for me to be, like, as peacocky as I can be as a Protestant guy. I understand Charles and Ray Eames had a big influence on you in terms of deciding to become a filmmaker, mm-hmm. in addition to perhaps your, your visual aesthetic. Yeah, totally. How so? Well, I love their... Everything? <laughs> I love their their lack of employment of high art credentials. Their films are so simple. Washing a parking lot, peeling potatoes. It's like William Carlos Williams. Mm. You know what I mean? There's like uh, this, is, this is amazing disempowerment of themselves in their work. This is my interpretation. They would never say this. But maybe they would in their sort of democratization thing that they would talk about. Anyone could do it, that thing. You know, there's parts of their design, anyone could do it in a way. It's very accessible. It's not virtuosic to me. Even their house, you, I guess architects would call it virtuosic. To me, it's not. It's Sweets catalog. That's what's amazing about it. It's, it's prefab parts. It's a big cube, you know. Uh, so there's something very open-ended about it and very um, non-fussy, simple. Um, you don't have to read a book to get it. And um, it's a little bit like Sesame Street to me in my head, like little those Sesame Street films about making bread. All the Eames films could easily appear on Sesame Street. Powers of Ten, yeah. Powers of Ten probably did, right? So it's like this rudimentary quality, this breaking things down to the composite part simplicity, which is not simple, right? It's, it's actually kind of profound. It's something about that I just really relate to. It's very emotionally soothing to me. I think, like, I have a fair amount of anxiety. The, the downside of my very interesting household is anxiety. Why is that? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, these people aren't who they say they are. These house where things can't be expressed. This house where there's a depression that's undiagnosed and unspoken that is humming, right? So if all those things can leave you, like, just wanting to know what's what, mm-hmm. right? So all my design tends to be centered. One object you know, like very, it's almost like Dick Bruna. It's like this, what is it? It is that, you know. Uh, and the Eames um, are satisfying and on an emotional level to me beyond all their, how it looks and what it means culturally and all that. Let's talk about some of your feature films. Um, you said that you feel you have the best shot at making a good movie if you work from a world that you've closely observed, things that you truly love, and things that truly confuse you. Mm-hmm. Why Why the confusion part? That's the most important part, in a way, because you need to have an alive question and something that you have to 
desperately heal or understand a bit more, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say understand, period. <laughs> but like As if that's the possible. questions that are just gnawing at you and kind of tearing you apart on some level, that's great film material. That's going to keep you charged all the way through. That's that's going to be alive in a certain way. It's going to have a certain electricity. So it's not just for me. I, I love Allen Ginsberg's Kaddish. I love Howl because it has that quality to it. There's a desperate he has to write that to like be sane, right? Um, other things that like the Ar- Maggie Nelson's Argonauts, that book, I feel like it's someone trying to understand their world on a fairly intense level, right? And for me, being, you know, okay, being a first world heterosexual white guy who grew up in a fairly comfortable scene. My perspective, the things the world has shown me is not that interesting or it's not that valuable, even to me. I'm not attracted to people like me (laughs) when I'm seeking a book or a movie or something like that. My parents have have very weird, interesting historical stories. Um, So what are you attracted to then? Well, I just feel like historically, in terms of contributing to a narrative that helps make the world more open, helps make the world more heterogeneous, all that. Um, Me just coming up with fiction based on my worldview is not just the most interesting thing. Um, Me looking at other people, me looking at things that have happened that have sort of more of a historical tooth to it, that have something about someone who's less represented in our narrative, someone who had more of a uh, struggle. And when the struggle, like for both my parents, there's a personal and political, there's a very minute, granular, intimate, interior quality to it that relates also to American history and bigger history. That's really exciting. And that I got to see it firsthand, right? So it's like I can report on it, hopefully with some specificity. That is what is interesting. If I'm just in a passive way, kind of going from my basic unconscious, that I don't find super interesting. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> your your first feature film, Thumbsucker, came out in 2005. It starred Vincent D'Onofrio, Tilda Swinton, and Vince Vaughn, and it's based on Walter Kern's novel about an adolescent boy's mutiny against his family. Um, you wrote a script. You raised $4 million to make it. And I read that you aspired to the simplicity of Yasuhiro Azu, the Japanese filmmaker who placed his camera at only two levels, sitting height and standing height. So you started with gigantic ambitions. <laughs> well, that's very simple, actually. If you're starting as a filmmaker, that's a great model because <laughs> it's like it takes out a million questions. You only fair, use the same lens. Enough. Yeah, yeah. And like lenses and what they do to faces and what they do to the emotions of a scene, that's such a complicated thing that as a 51-year-old, I feel like I'm just really understanding how a 75 changes the scene compared to a 35, you know? And a 35 is kind of basically what your eye sees. And I kind of learned that unconsciously through Jim Jarmusch, because Jim Jarmusch is a huge Ozu fan and has that sort of observational plop-down camera quality. And again, this is like very emotionally soothing to me. There's no virtuosic envelopment to it. You're kind of seeing, it's a little bit like um, 
it's like a documentary photograph. There's something sort of stable about it. Yeah. So this thing that which I found in the Eames, this thing which I find in some conceptual art, and like Hans Peter Feldman, this thing which I found in Ozu is this like stark simplicity and sati. Like I love mm. sati because I have room to think around the notes and to be myself. And there's an openness and um you can kind of see the music or something. But there's also a sort of sadness to his music, I sure, think. Sure, sure. Yeah. That, that's a part of it that I love, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything I'm attracted to has some depressive streak in it. I was actually going to ask you about that. How much depression? How much does depression figure into your work? The movie you did after Thumbsucker was about Japanese depression. You know, depression is something that's in my family that you can't talk about, that you feel, that you inherit, that you take on as a child. And, but you can't, it's, it's illegal to say, right? So you spend the rest of your real life trying to say it or to have a space where you can feel it and it's okay. And to not either be shamed for having the feeling or dragged down by the feeling. So someplace that can hold the feeling without drowning in it or, or drowning from the shame, right? So so much of my art, and Thumbsucker in particular, is about a place to have your shame, have your vulnerability, and survive, Right? And I'm attracted to so much art, which does that for me. Do you yeah. still feel like you experience a lot of shame? Oh, sure. I mean, less and less. Years and years and years and years and years and years of therapy, you know, kind of expunge that and just being an adult and being married and be, having a kid and all that. But it's the background. Your wife, artist, writer, filmmaker, Miranda July, said this. Making things is what you do to comfort yourself if you feel an inborn loneliness that won't go away. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the best definitions of making things mm-hmm. or the best motivation that I've ever read about making things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you agree? Oh, yeah. That's, we both share that dynamic, the mirroring that we wanted or from the, the family to the big family just didn't work out. And so you, as kids, you found these other ways to kind of slightly control it, apparently control it, seem to think that you can control it, but not really. And also just keep yourself busy and have some relationship with yourself that you can kind of see and feel and hold on to, you know. Do you feel that beginners and and also I think 20th century women reflect that inborn loneliness? There's a sort of sense of loneliness, I think, throughout both Movies of yeah. trying to be understood, trying to be yeah. part of something bigger than oneself in some way. Was well, that, and I think all the, for different reasons, all those characters are trying to be themselves. And it's sort of Ill- literally illegal or become illegal in their heads. I think, there, you know, there's certain artists, I'm sure everyone knows this, is seen as like, you meet so-and-so, they're the chipperest person and then like, oh, I just wrote a new song when you hear it. Sure. It's like Leonard Cohen. <laughs> and all their songs are like Leonard Cohen, but they're like a happy person. But their creativity is a place where their depression, or, or depression can be like a trapping, reductive word, where their unknown mystery of that which is not happiness resides. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so whenever you make anything, any drawing, any book, any movie, there is, you've gone, you go into that river a bit. You know what I mean? And it's not always a negative. It's not always uh, a downward succumbing situation. I, it's, I think, also a solace in a lot of ways. Sure. Or or naming it to get out of it or whatever. It could be so many different things. 
So I, de- I feel like I'm one of those people. I'm doing a project right now for the National, the band, the National. And I kind of feel like I don't know them really, but it's like somehow I feel like it's true for them. Like their creativity, their joint creativity is a space where that mystery is held. That sounds so new agey, but I No, I, get, I, I think it. I understand it. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe there's this, this in, innate inborn loneliness that is using creativity in an effort to connect uh-huh. somehow. For sure. Beginners is loosely based on your own relationship with your father and the movie starred uh, Ewan McGregor as a graphic designer mm-hmm. whose 75-year-old father, played by Christopher Plummer, uh, has just come out, and he wants to experience the gay life he denied himself when he was married. And when you were scripting Beginners, you wrote the words, this has already happened to everybody all the time mm. on an index card. Mm-hmm. How come? Because, uh, well, so that story is totally based on my life, and it's sort of a creative nonfiction or something. And, and my dad dying, my second parent dying, it's quite intense and sad and like a huge milestone. And my dad's coming out and having five gay years, but not having as much as he wanted and dying hungry, you know, like dying, mm. like wanting to eat more of the peach, you know? Yeah. Um, and so you can kind of get like precious about all that, right? Or even like your parents dying. You can get, you can feel like it's an individual thing or you can feel just precious. And I wanted to sort of invoke the blues in a way, right? Like these are things that happen to all of us all the time, everywhere. And just to remember that. Right to keep that front and center in my head that yes, this is everything in that movie came from the real world down to the dog, you know, yeah. like. But I wanted to sort of, you know, like put it into a fire and release it to the world, right? That's what making a film about it is kind of doing. And also, I had Fellini in my head a lot for both those movies because he's he's so good at understanding that his stories come from a very personal space, but he's saying it to all these strangers in the dark room. And he's really in touch with them, and and he and he treats it like a lyrical myth, right? And he understands the connection between the two things. You've said that your father coming out was actually a gesture of him saying, "I want life. I uh. want more life. I want something." And this was a man who was so self-denying for so long. So when this very polite, quiet man came out. It was the beginning of him becoming more vivid and hot and present, which was often messy, but always wonderful. Uh-huh. Mike, that must have been incredible to witness that. Yeah, that, that uh, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't thought about that for a minute. Um, yeah, you know, he was also like a vain, egotistical museum director guy, so it's not like he was so shy and all that, but he was shy, and he, was, uh, he didn't do what he wanted to do for so long on this deep, deep, deep level. Like, your sexuality is such a, like, physical hunger type thing. So to see him do it and to become, like, an adolescent, you know, late in life and after my mom was gone, and which was often really difficult and bound, not boundaried and not cool, you know, like, not right and not good to my sisters and me, you know what I mean? Um, but for me personally... Seeing him hungry and demanding. And loving, I would imagine. Loving, yes, but also you love one person a whole lot. <laughs> but 
and that was beautiful to see, like him really in love, like in a obsessed way, you know, even when you haven't seen that. That's sort of like key cognitive thing for the child to understand and to see. And it goes into you in a way that is hard to describe. It goes, it gets uh, a software that goes right into your hard drive. You know, even if you're, I'm, how old was I? My late 30s, right? And my dad was older. It's like the way that things are implanted on you when you're a child, I felt like, like seeing all that. Um, but I don't want to underestimate or under-describe how uh, often truly effed up it was. Yeah. Right? But but I'll still, I'll take it, hands down, no questions, bam, I'll take it, versus the other version, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It feels as if Beginners was inspired by the notion that it can take an entire lifetime to figure out how to be fully alive. And I sort of love that in real life, after coming out, your father physically transformed. You said that he went from 75 to 40 in days. Mm -hmm. And Christopher Plummer won an Oscar for his role, and I can't help but think that your dad should have gotten one, too, given the bravery it took to completely change your life at 75 years old. Yeah, yeah. Well, life is much uh, more challenging than movies, right? There's no comparison. And well, I came out at fifty, so I can only imagine what it was like to come out at seventy-five. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like what Christopher, God bless Christopher, right? And I love Christopher, and he did. Um, it was really amazing working with him, and what he did. It's fucking nothing compared to coming out for my dad or like <laughs> they don't compare yeah you know what I mean yeah. they don't compare yeah. it's like a flight simulator based, comparing to a, a plane in the war you know, it's just <laughs> yeah. it's not the same thing one of, the, one of the most interesting things we did preparing for beginners is um, I had Christopher and Ewan and Gorn who plays the boyfriend host a lunch for a bunch my dad was involved in prime timers gay man over 50 I'm not sure there's a certain line a certain year but it's I think it's gay men over 50. It's like a community thing and it's nationwide. And it was his, it was one of his great helpers, great community things that he bumped into. And it's so amazing being a heterosexual widower and then being a older gay man. It's like, whoa, your life is so much better. <laughs> you have all these things to do now. Wow. You, know? and you have a community that really takes care of you, that, <laughs> that understand, that had to fight like hell for their community and kind of treasures you, you know, in this weird way. And um, that was like a super beautiful thing. And the prime timers was a big part of it. So I reached out to the prime timers, and some guys are in the movie, um, some gay men who are in the movie, um, and people who weren't in the movie were involved in prime timers. We had a lunch. I had Ewan host, Ewan had to call them all, get their lunch order, go get the lunch and serve it, which is sort of like what I did, had to do a lot. Like my dad kind of always turned me into a butler, you know, and his, my gay dad. And then I asked them, this, I was like, guys, if you are willing, could you share any of your stories about coming out? And Christopher goes, Michael, that is rude. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. You know, Christopher being from the 30s, like, you know, that's 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 a boundaryless invasion. And luckily all the guys are like, no, 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 I'll tell, I'll tell. And they're, and they're all looking at Captain Von Trapp. Like they are dying to perform to, to Captain course, Von Trapp, right? Oh my God. So they tell their stories and oh my God, it's just like every version you can imagine of not still having not told anyone and being, you know, 55 to their family disowning them, to their family accepting them, to all that. And oh my God, it humbled Christopher and Ewan and Gorn in a very deep way. 
that was the best thing I ever did. You know, I didn't even, and I had no idea it was going to be the best thing at all. You know, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, the drawings that Ewan makes as a graphic designer in the movie, those are yours, uh-huh. correct? Uh huh. How often do you still draw? I draw professionally. <laughs> so like I drew... Oh, so you made those for the movie? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, it's, okay. You know, it's really funny. So, so I, you know, I've drawn as a kid, right? And I draw, that's how I got into art school. I could draw anything. So that's how I got into Cooper. Oh. So drawing has really been like my money in the bank, you know? But as an adult, there was a really funny moment in Beginners where um, I taught Ewan how to draw a bit. And Ewan was fascinated and Ewan likes building things and stuff. So he was really into it. So he came to my studio and we would do lots of drawing stuff together. And um, and he loved that. And the idea was he draws, I'll start a drawing and then he'll keep drawing and then I'll finish it. That's how we did An it in the movie. exquisite corpse kind of thing? Yeah. And so one time we're filming and, and there was this beautiful sunset, this amazing like blood red sunset. And we didn't have any, we were just in between shots and Ewan's like, let's shoot it. And the whole crew was like, let's shoot out this window. We're at this Neutra house, we're at Neutra's health house with this insane view. You know, that's where that, that's where Hal lived in that movie. And Ewan's like, yeah, I'll just be like you. I'll just be like drawing. And I was like, Ewan, I only draw when I'm getting paid. I'm sorry. Like I, I draw for a <laughs> job. Spoken like a real designer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't draw like as a, as a, for fun, you know, and he, he was just so like, oh, okay. You know. Your most recent film, 20th Century Women, is set in Santa Barbara in the late 70s and stars Annette Bening as a 55-year-old single woman raising her teenage son, Jamie, in a boarding house full of wonderful misfits. Um, This film is also autobiographical. And in an interview on NPR, you stated, ever since you were a kid, you yearned to understand your mother Mm. and have described her as a secretive soul who was different from all the other moms he knew. And you also referred to your mom as a tricky ghost. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about her secret soul or her being a tricky ghost. Well, I mean, there's many layers to that. Uh, so she's from she's born in 1925. People from that era don't talk about their interior lives. They don't talk about their conflicts. They don't talk about their sadness. So there's a whole bunch no, they're of they're always fine, right? Yeah. How are you doing, Mom? Fine. We're good. All right. yeah. uh, and and she's a World War II vet. She's not actually a vet, but she's kind of like a World War II vet. And she is a depression vet. Like she really, you know, her mom divorced in 1929. Wow. <laughs> so she had a single mom during... That's know, pretty radical. Very radical. And her mom was kind not a flapper really, but kind of like a post-World War I woman, you know. So... There's that. There's that layer. She's a Gemini. Let's talk about astrology. So Geminis, they, you know. Tricky. Tricky. tricky, And the obvious is boring, right? Very boring. And and Annette Bening is a Gemini. It was kind of a very magical part of the shoot. And my sister who studies astrology said, you know, there's nothing more boring than what's expected or the obvious. And my mother was sort of a trickster figure. Her sense of humor was like that. And then she's, she grew up in the 30s, and she's, you know, in the 30s in America, people went to see movies two or three times a week. So she grew up on all those fast-talking women and men from those post-haste era films. And if you, and she loved Bogart and always talked about Bogart. And I really feel like Bogart was her best model. And my mom's fairly non-gender conforming person, you know, just imagine Amelia Earhart, kind of, even slightly shorter hair, 
and always wearing pants. So I kind of feel like, and this is my interpretation, my sisters would have a different interpretation, but Humphrey Bogart was her best shot at happiness. His sense of humor, his way, he never wins, right, in a movie, but he survives. I never survives. thought of it that way, yeah. He's gallant. He, it's a, it's a way he's to noble. Be, he's noble as the plane's going down, right? So I kind of feel like that's my mom's software, you know? So, but Bogart's not going to tell you any secrets. And Bogart, you know, try to try to understand Bogart's vulnerability or what's really going on with him. I think as a real person and as per, his persona, um, that's never going to happen, right? And then she, in her later life, I do feel like there's a lot of secrets in there about my dad, about her childhood. There's things that... Not only does she not want to talk about it, if you bring him up or if you even kind of unconsciously, unverbally send a ping out on the family radar, you know, how are you feeling? You're going to get a defensive trickster answer back. So even as it goes, so even as I'm writing her after she's passed away and I'm invoking her, I'm, I have to be her, right? Um, she doesn't want to chat. <laughs> the ghost hotline is not open. My father wanted to talk. My father wanted a film about him. Like, you could just feel it, you know? And my mom is much more hesitant and, and trickstery about it. Like, wants it sometimes, other times doesn't, you know? So that's, that's what it felt like. In making the film, you stated that as a heterosexual, cisgender guy talking about women, you were worried and wanted to find where your limitations were and make them part of the piece. Uh-huh. Did you feel like you did that? I'm sure I could have done it more. Um, it's something I for sure thought about a lot and stopped me a lot. You know, there's lot, I wrote that thing for like three years and maybe a, a year's worth of the stopping was like, how can I write this? How can I write these women's voices? Because it is weird to... <laughs> and so Abby's character is based a lot on my sister. And luckily my sister was just very generous and told me, and I just interviewed her, interviewed her and interviewed her. Um, but this thing kind of also comes naturally to me so I grew up in a family with very strong mom two very strong women sisters who are 10 and 7 years older so they're like adults right and gay dad who's kind of closeted gay dad who's not the patriarch of the family doesn't know where the fork drawer is you know it's kind of like a ghost in the house so I live in a matriarchy and I'm used to trying to figure out women right like to survive like to, and to be okay to not be in trouble to get what I want to get the attention I want right I've that's how I grew up. So so in some ways, it's very normal, you know? But then as an adult, making a movie in a public space, in a public sphere, getting released at the arc light, you're like, holy crap, like, what am I doing? And how am I going to do this? I was actually talking to a woman friend, and she kind of started to say that dialogue that Julie says at the end. We're like, that's just your version of me. That's not really me. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. That has to be in the movie. Because, <laughs> like, that's this this consciousness which I was trying to get in, which I'm sure I could have gotten in more, but I was very happy when I did find a way to get it in. As as somebody who not only loved the movie, but has, has gone on to quote the movie in, in numerous instances, I felt like you really understood women. That's really, nice. really were able to capture the personalities of very distinctly different women mm. in a in a very authentic way. Mm-hmm. You end the movie by saying that you'll never be able to explain your mom to your son, mm-hmm. um, and I believe your son is four now. Do you think that you've been able to 
do that in a different way now that you've made the film? Um, well, you've seen the trailer. He's five now. He's okay. seen the trailer, so he knows that line. Isn't that funny? Because that line is in the trailer. Um, I mean, I definitely in some ways made the movie for him. Not, And in some ways totally not. I made it for strangers at the Arclight. And how I think how about did you them. make it? In what part of you made it Spiritually for Spiritually for me. You know what I mean? Like, as a maker of something that takes that long, takes five, six years, there's so many times where it can fall apart, where you're really desperate, and it's unlike anything I've ever experienced. It's it's so brutal. In those moments of collapse, why am I doing this? Mm. You know, it comes out. And I'm doing it to be alive, right? That's answer number one. This is how I communicate with people in a real way. I'm doing it to kind of be a part of the world, you know? Uh, and I'm doing it because I feel like I kind of know these people. And I'm saying that about my mother and my sister. And if I know anyone, if I have feet on this earth, it's because of them and because I've seen them. So maybe I can make a movie about that. And maybe I can exist on this earth. And maybe I could tell that to Hopper, my boy, right? So so when I'm having a, an, an attack and, and a collapse, I go through that. And right? when you have those attacks, do you still think you want to give it all up and become a, a dog rescue Dog rescue person. My wife has teased me enough about that to make me realize that I'm being duplicitous when I have that <laughs> dream. Because I'm more ambitious and less shy than I always, you know, like I come across and often portray myself as a shy, unambitious person. Miranda's always like, that is such bullshit. You Why know? do you do it? Why do I do it? Because part of me is, and that's part of where I live, because I'm I'm George Michael's fat kid, right? And I'm not, I don't realize I'm a sex symbol. <laughs> and um, and uh, it's easier, right? As a guy, being an ambitious guy is kind of an ugly thing. So it's more easy to be an unambitious guy. And if you're an ambitious guy, you're emitting it. And I don't know, I'm british enough to just not find that cool. Right, and I think it's my parents. Like, um, uh, maybe wanting things is difficult. Wanting things is difficult. Yeah, sure. And wanting fame, or wanting my film to do well, or wanting recognition is definitely sketchy turf. Well, congratulations on your Oscar nomination, though. That must have been pretty nice. Although I know Miranda said something like, "Hey, that's buying into the whole sort the of system." Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it is. Um, it's nice, and it's. Uh, okay, guys, you want to know the truth? Yeah. <laughs> no one likes hearing this. No one likes hearing this because you're supposed to, when people congratulate you on your Oscar nomination, you're supposed to just say, oh, thank you so much. It's such an honor. I feel so lucky, and this is amazing. My film got seen by that many people. Like, that's the answer. That's the answer. Is there, like, a, a manual that comes out when you get I've these heard things? so many other Oscar nominees <laughs> say this. I realize, oh, this is this narrative that I'm oh, now involved okay, with. Okay. And, that, and part of me feels that for sure. Good to know. Part of me for sure feels that. Another part of me feels like, the whole Oscar process and and all the film festivals you go and the whole campaign thing that you do to promote your movie and Oscars are promoting your movie so more people see your movie and of course I would love to get an Oscar so I could tell so I could be like concrete <laughs> what did you evidence do? of what living. did you do yeah evidence that I did something right for sure I'm not above that at all but here's also what it feels like people it's like going to the prom over and over and over again. And you're not going to be nominated, and you're not even that popular at the prom. But you're at the prom with all the most popular people again and again and again. So it sounds like this great thing that of going like up, <laughs> but it's really like you're never going to realize how not famous you are until you do that. I'm sorry, man. It sounds horrible. 
<laughs> that's whining or what. But I mean, I'm just being honest. That's, oh, that's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and the thing that here's the thing that's a huge honor about making movies, not so much all the Oscar stuff and that kind of stuff. It's like people write me emails saying, that's like my mom, you know, or a woman will write me, a mom will write me an email like, wow, I'm a single mom and I really liked your movie. I feel like I'm not represented. That, that's an Oscar. And like that's that's the thing that's like, whoa, I connected with somebody. Or when you do tours, you do um, uh, Q&A screenings every night. And it's like you come into the movie and the lights are coming on and you can kind of feel this certain soup in the room. And some soups are better than others. But it's a really intimate experience to ask people to sit down in the dark for two hours and watch what you're thinking about. And I feel like that's a huge privilege. That is a huge privilege that anyone watches your movie and uh, and that strangers do and that it's not in the art world. To me, that's like extra valuable that it's at a Metroplex in Chicago. That's like, wow. <laughs> um, it's like the way, I, way maybe a lot of people feel about like having a show in, in MoMA. I feel about that. Like, oh, I'm not in MoMA. I'm, at, <laughs> I'm in the pop. I'm in popular culture. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Mike, I have one last question for you. But before I ask it, I was wondering if you'd read something that you've written that is on the cover of your book, Mike Mills Graphics Films, which seems to be suggestions about how to live or a sort of mini manifesto and was wondering if you would read it. So I had this poster company line thing coming out of Japan and it was me trying to be kind of like Warner Works at Bauhaus now. Like, how do you make work that has all the ambition of art but is 30 bucks a pop and um, part of everyday life, right? So I made all these posters and they were me and it was me trying to figure out me. <laughs> and I started doing a lot of manifesto things because it's so because I'm right to kind of out myself right uh, and they're kind of hyperbolic and uh, embarrassing and so it's sort of like a like a Ginsburgy thing Ginsburg says if you're not embarrassed you haven't done it right you haven't really gone there so I'll read you this one so I did a lot of different weird manifestos and they're kind of jokes and kind of not so this one says one be more positive Two, try to stop anthropomorphizing the animals I know, or at least do it less. Three, play games that require abandon. Four, get better at maintaining relationships with friends. Five, look at how I'm not fully conscious of my real life. Admit that I'm groping in the dark, overwhelmed by the consequences of my acts, and that every moment I'm faced with outcomes I did not intend. I stole the last one from somewhere. I forgot where. I paraphrased. It's like okay. probably like Pima Children or something <laughs> like that. So my last question for you has to do with the style of your work. And you've said this verbatim. My shit is so sweet and earnest <laughs> and trying so hard to be nice. At times, I just feel like, let's do something nasty, Mike, with some evil people. Let's fuck some shit up. So do you have any plans to do something nasty and to fuck some shit up? Um, I wish I could. It's interesting. It's not really me. And I uh, and I and I'm repulsed by myself sometimes. Like, oh and the sweetness, Mike. the sweetness. Like, and I do feel like it is too sweet sometimes. But to do those other things isn't really like my predicament. My predicament is this other place, this like vulnerable sweet trying to 
be kind and generous. And I was just reading my son a book about Jane Goodall. I was like, right. You know, like, I'm sorry. She's rad. Her whole deal is rad. That is the goal. Okay, here's a Milan Kundera quote that I was haunts me that I love. He's talking about kitsch. He talks about kitsch a lot, which is basically like sentimentality. And in art and just in life, it's this metaphysical teleprompter that asks us to look in the mirror and fall in love with what we see in the mirror and all those the problems that we see in the mirror. And it blinds us from knowing what we really have lived. Mm. And um, that is a very interesting practice, right? Or problem or pursuit is like, and I'm not trying to be self-deprecating to get the compliment, right? There is a sweetness that does block some things and, and honey some things that shouldn't be honeyed. And so in my attempt to see my life, I'm, I want to get out of that. But I am basically, or my creativity, my world, my vibe comes from this like kind place. <laughs> that's sometimes embarrassing, but that's what it is. Well, I know you're not fishing for any kind of compliments, mm. but I will say thank you for putting all the extraordinary things you put out into the world. It really makes a difference. Oh, thanks. That's nice. Thank you for joining me yeah, today yeah. on Design Matters, Mike. To find out more about Mike Mills, head on over to MikeMillsMikeMills.com. Because <laughs> that's humble. <laughs> <laughs> this is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemelman.com. If you like the podcast, please write a review on iTunes and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.